0: One of the characteristics of the radicals is that they're young, they're restless. They don't have any idea of compromise. For them to even allow for this to continue is sin. And so they had to confront it head on. And we see this throughout this movement is that this idea of compromise is one of their great fears. And so Mons was arrested and he was taken out to Lake Zurich and he was drowned by the city government. And as he was being taken out, as he's been rowed out, with his hands tied behind him on the boat, from the shoreline, his mother was screaming at him not to recant. Whatever you do, son, you, you go into the water and you go down, but you do not recant. So there is this fervency and, and fearlessness that is admirable. It's what Luther claimed to have done at the Diet of Worms. He stood fast on, on his convictions, on his conscience. And yeah, the radicals said, so are we. We're just doing, you know, what you said you did. But again, there were, there were concerns that this was not just a, a theological question, this was a political and social mm-hmm. question. particularly with infant baptism.
1: On this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Shane England about the radical reformers of the 16th century and how the ideas of the radical reformation, though they were initially met with opposition, They've had an incredible impact on Christianity as we know it today, including how the church relates to government and society as a whole. Furthermore, we discuss some of the lessons that we can learn today from the mistakes and missteps that the radical reformers made. Shane England is a teaching elder at Ennis Evangelical Church in County Clare, Ireland. He spent several years as a missionary in Ukraine, and he is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. I hope you'll enjoy this discussion, and I'll be back at the end with some closing thoughts. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and today I'm joined once again by Shane England. Hey, Shane, thanks for being on. Thanks so much, Nick. This time around, I wanted to pick your brain about the radical reformers of the 16th century. I love the Reformation. Personally, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and so Uh, You know what's interesting? When I was growing up in it, I didn't appreciate it at all. But as I've gotten older, and especially as I went back to school, I've really appreciated the work of Luther. I've really appreciated the Reformation period, and I've done a lot of study on it. Ended up doing a lot of work, even in my master's dissertation, looking at some of Luther's work on biblical interpretation. But I know that there's also this other part of the Reformation, which is called the Radical Reformation. And I want to introduce our listeners to that part of the Reformation. And I know that you've done some study on it. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. So the Radical Reformation is a very interesting part of the, the story, the history of the Reformation. And I think most people would be more or less familiar with some of the leading theologians of the Reformation, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. And, and these people were, you know, highly influential, very well respected, and they tended to be in academic circles. But there was also a, a movement that began in response to the, the teaching of the Reformation and Martin Luther in particular, but it was more of a grassroots movement that involved not just professors and doctors of theology, although it did involve those to some extent, but it also involved a mass movement of, well, you know, we would refer to as peasants, uneducated people from agricultural or lower income backgrounds. And some of the, some of the the things that they did in response to the, to the message of the Reformation really outraged Luther and Calvin. And it was a, a sort of a, a tool that opponents of the Reformation sometimes used to discredit the whole Reformation because of the actions of what they regarded as this radical fringe element. But if you read the writings of these radicals, they, they have a lot to teach us as well. They, they made a lot of mistakes as did the magisterial reformers, but they also had some powerful biblical convictions and Of course, it is important to understand what motivated them. And I think it is a a very interesting part of the Reformation story.
1: Mm. So when we talk about reformers, I think this is important for people to understand these phrases before we move forward. So we are these titles. So we talk about the magisterial reformers, and then we talk about the radical reformers. Can you explain the difference between the two?
0: Yeah, so the magisterial, we call them magisterial because they tended to work quite closely with the secular government, the magistrates. And they they had a very positive view of the role of government, even in church life. They had a role, they, they viewed the government as having a, a God-ordained role to maintain order and to provide a space for the true proclamation of the gospel. On the other side, the radicals, tended to have a very pessimistic view about the role of human government and they were open to challenge existing political structures such as the idea of monarchy the idea of hereditary power the idea of taxation without representation the idea that power was held by certain elites and that they regarded the the magisterial reformers as colluding with powerful people, and they regarded that as a contradiction to the gospel message that we were all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so because of that, they tended to overtly resist the governments in their their areas. And also they called for a reconstitution of government, that they tended to be more inclined towards sort of a proto-Republican view, that people should be able to vote for their leaders, There should be citizens' rights, these kind of things. And the reformers, such as Luther or Melanchthon or Calvin, that, that horrified them because they were keen to present themselves as not- Fostering political rebellion, but rather working for the reformation of the church and, and so the magisterial reformers came out very strongly against the radicals and If you actually read the beginning of John calvin's institutes, that great work of theology by by Calvin, even though he was not living in France, he addresses the institutes to the King of France, who was Roman Catholic, and in the opening pages, he goes to great lengths to distance himself from the Anabaptists, from the radicals. So he says that, you know, I'm writing as a, as a man who is trying to reform the church, but I'm in no way associated with people that are trying to overthrow monarchies or governments or set up uh, the kingdom of God on earth. So there was this definitely a desire to distance themselves from the more radical elements of the Reformation. And of course, to the critics of the Reformation, all of this was just exactly what they had foretold. Thomas More in England had predicted this. He said, you know, if, if Luther gets his way, it won't be the church that is overthrown. It will be government. It will be mm. the kings. It will be the monarchies of Europe. And he predicted this exactly as it, as it actually happened in Germany in, in the 1520s. And so for many critics of the Reformation, this was sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy that they had predicted all along.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, is it as simple as just saying that the, uh, the magisterial reformers Representative view which would say the marriage of church and state, whereas the radical reformers held the view of what we would call today the separation of church and state?
0: Yeah, I, in some sense, but it is difficult to pin down the radicals because they're such a diverse group. What we mm-hmm. sometimes see is actually the exaltation of church over state. Mm-hmm. In other words, that the state is altogether replaced and removed from society. And in its place, you have a a government of the church where the church is now the civil magistrate and the church is the sole authority both for doctrine and life. And so you have that radical you know, manifestation of what government looked like. On the other hand, you do have very many of the radicals who were adamant to maintain a very, very clear distinction between the role of the state and the role of the church. And they advocated for pacifism, for non-resistance, but they also really had a strong view that the state had absolutely no role in in ordering or in controlling anything that the church had to do, because those were completely separate spheres. So is it really
1: just the matter of church and state that made them radical? And let's, let's dial back a little bit and just say bigger picture. Yeah. Who were the radical reformers? What set them apart from other reformers of mm. their time?
0: yeah it's a fascinating area of study because there is there are so many there are so many aspects to it. but if you just start at the beginning, you know martin luther he he nailed the ninety five theses to the door of Wittenberg, and then we have the diet of worms fifteen twenty one where he's he has to give an account for this criticism of indulgences and he's excommunicated. And in that time, Luther is expounding a view of the gospel where we have this idea of justification by faith alone. We have the idea that the the scriptures are the sole infallible and highest authority for the church. So you you have these teachings of Luther, but obviously Luther after the Diet of Worms has to disappear for his own protection. So he ends up being taken to a castle in Barkburg in Germany where he is hidden. But in the meantime. In the in the town that Luther was teaching in Wittenberg in Germany, his associates in the university begin to push ahead with what they regarded as the logical outworkings of the Reformation as Martin Luther had started it, and so you have some of the professors of theology. One of the main ones being a guy called Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt. So. He was a very well respected theologian. In fact, he was the, the, the doctor of, of theology that oversaw Martin Luther's own graduation with his doctorate in 1512. And what, what Karlstadt said was we need to push ahead with the full reformation of the church right now. And that involves taking what Martin Luther said about the priesthood of all believers to its full extent. And so he began to dress like a peasant, he wouldn't wear clerical robes when he was leading church services. He began to lead church services in German, disregarding the Latin liturgy. He ordered all images and crucifixes taken out of churches and destroyed. And he began to teach that baptism should not be given to infants, but it was only to believers. And this caused a lot of trouble in Wittenberg and already there was trouble enough, but with these reforms being pushed through in such a forceful way with much opposition from some people, but also insisting that this had to be done and using coercion, even burning crucifixes attacking priests in Wittenberg that still use the old Latin liturgy. So very confrontation, very aggressive. And when Martin Luther found out about that, he had to return from Wartburg and try to Try to maintain peace and order, and Luther's big fear was that really, what the radicals like Karstadt were doing was nothing more than legalism. It was attempting to enforce their standard of worship and piety on the people and basically judging and casting out of the church anyone who wasn't willing to go along with their programs and so you know. That, that's where it began is with this idea that the Reformation needs to happen now and it needs to be a full Reformation. It cannot be any compromise, even on secondary issues, even on the language we use. It has to be a, a holy church. And so you see that and Luther's response is, is to criticize it as the spirit of legalism. But also within that movement, then we begin to see a strong emphasis on a an experience of God in a personal sense that supersedes a scholarly approach to the Bible. And there was this divide emerging between what people saw as spirit-filled Christians and students or scholars of the Bible. And the spirit-filled Christians began to maintain that people like Luther, people like Luther were the problem. They You know, they just studied the Bible all day long, but did that change anyone's life? Did that actually produce holiness? Did it produce social change? Did it attack questions of injustice? And they would say, no, he doesn't do any of that. He just talks about theology all day long. And so they began to say that really the driving force for change in the church isn't the clear articulation of theology. It isn't addressing theological misunderstanding. It's people filled with the spirit that are opened to this inner light. are willing to walk in a radical obedience. And so you, you see this criticism then by the radicals of people like Luther and the magisterial reformers as being soft on sin, as not being consistent, as being cowardly. That was one of the main accusations that a lot of the radicals would throw at Luther. One of his critics was a guy called Thomas Munzer and Munzer Wrote a, a pamphlet against Luther, where he described him as just this big, fat, useless scholastic who basically is a coward who just wants the princes of Germany to protect him. And he said Luther has never experienced persecution, but he keeps telling everyone about how he had to be rescued and go to Wartburg Castle. and And Munster said the the problem isn't the Bible. You know, you can read the Bible all day long. The, the scribes and the Pharisees they knew the Bible. That's not the issue. It's the spirit. It's been willing. To be led by the guidance of God. It's been willing to be led by prophetic dreams and visions. That's when you will see true reformation. And so you already begin to see a departure from some of the main teachings of the magisterial reformers concerning the authority and centrality of scripture. And, and from that flows a lot of different views on certain questions, but also some major political upheaval in central Europe.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure our listeners, as they're listening to you talk about these movements and the ways that things started to to go, I'm sure that they can start to maybe draw some connections between modern day movements, both political, social, mm. and even like in practical theology, right? Like, where do you what what role does studying theology play as opposed to personal experience and you mm-hmm. know, like you said, being filled with the spirit, experiencing prophetic dreams, social change, these sorts of things. I think there's so many implications for this. Now let me ask you this. Yeah. The title radical, mm-hmm. I, I've heard different things about like who applied it and how it what it meant, but what would you say to that? Who gave them this title and what was it what was the meaning?
0: Yeah, it is a modern title, but back then Luther would have called these people Schwarmer, which is like swarmers, like fanatics. And he said they are, these are fanatic people that are consumed with a spirit of legalism because they compare themselves to everyone else. They think that they are some kind of elite vanguard of Christianity. Um, and all they talk about is their own experiences and their own visions and their own dreams. So in in the days that this was unfolding, you you know, you had titles such as fanatic or you know the, the spirit prophetic Christians. But yeah, it, it is a put down. It is certainly an, an attempt to dismiss these people as an aberration. Yet within this movement, you could say that there is sort of the the logical unfolding of what Luther had been preaching. <laughs> Maybe that Luther would even have backed away from some of the things he had said had he had he foresaw this. I mean, if if Scripture is the final authority, then then absolutely, you know, people felt that they had the right to question many aspects of Christian worship, including baptism, because people, you know, studying the Bible said, you know. This is not a doctrine that we find in scripture. You had people saying, look at Christ. He was, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, but he wasn't baptized until he was, you know, in his thirties. So, you know, it's not just a replication of, of circumcision. This is, you know, for to follow Christ, as you say, he is our model. And so there was, of course, social and political implications because of that. If people were to begin to reject baptism, the great fear of governments in Europe was that they would reject citizenship that they would reject their their obligations as citizens to their kings and overlords because baptism of infants was really a social contract it was the idea of a christian nation but if people were rejecting even the the, the entry point into citizenship what would that mean for social cohesion and that 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 was a fear you do have people like the Swiss Re- Anabaptist Felix Manns, who wrote about infant baptism and his disagreements with that. And Mans is at pains to say, I'm not advocating for revolution. I'm not advocating for violence. I'm not advocating for overthrowing government. I'm advocating that we'd be good citizens, but that we'd be biblical and that we teach what the Bible teaches about baptism, as he could understand it from his reading, which was that it is a believer's baptism. It is a, follows a confession of faith. That's how Mans viewed it. And he was teaching in, Zur- in Zurich where we have, you know, Zwingli, another one of the great magisterial reformers, and this caused huge problems. And Zwingli elicited the, the city government to forbid Mans from preaching. And he was arrested. And every time he was released, he would just start open air preaching. Every time he was threatened, he would just, as soon as he was released, he would continue preaching infant baptism. His critics, his criticisms of that, and he would not shut up. He kept Mm -hmm. going on about it. And that is probably one of the characteristics of the radicals is that they're young, they're restless. Mm -hmm. They don't have any idea of compromise for them to even, to even allow for this to continue is sin. And so they had to confront it head on. And we see this throughout this movement is that this idea of compromise is one of their great fears. And so Mons was arrested and he was taken out to Lake Zurich and he was drowned by the city government. And as he was being taken out, as he's been rowed out with his hands tied behind him on the boat from the shoreline, his mother was screaming at him not to recant. Whatever you do, son, you. You go into the water and you go down, but you do not recant. So there is this fervency and, and fearlessness that mm-hmm. is admirable. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's what Luther you know, claimed to have done at the Diet of Worms. He stood fast on, on his convictions, on his conscience. And yeah, the radicals exactly. said, so are we. We're just doing you know, what you said we did. But again, there were, there were concerns that this was not just a, a, a theological question. This was a political and social mm-hmm. question particularly with infant baptism. That was a yeah. big one.
1: Well, and my understanding too is that like the the term radical or Schwarmer, you know, like the idea that they were fanatics, in a way, the radical reformers, and I think that you're talking about this as well, they, they also kind of like embraced it, right? Like in the same way that the word Christian, like in the book of Acts, was initially kind mm. of a pejorative intent, but the Christians were like, yeah, actually that's right. And in a way, great, because radical... Meaning, like, radics, meaning getting to the root of the issue. Right. And they didn't just want surface change, right? They didn't just want to, like, yeah. you know, minuscule change the church. They wanted to, no. you know, turn everything on its head and take everything to yeah. the full full extent.
0: No, that's, that's exactly right. That's a good point. And, and I think that is one of the characteristics of radicals at this time is that we do see an emphasis on primitive Christianity that the magisterial reformers don't necessarily have. The magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin and others, they have a very high regard for church history, for church mm-hmm. tradition, for the ecumenical creeds, for the outworking of Christian theology. They have a great regard for the early church fathers, the schwarmers. <laughs> The radicals, much less so, they, they, they think really that there is so much in the church that is unbiblical, even the way people dress. Like, mm. why, why do pastors wear robes? Where did that come from? Show me the verse that says that's okay. So, you know, we talked about Karstadt, one of Luther's colleagues in Wittenberg. Well, he refused to be called Dr. Karstadt, even though he was a professor. He wanted to be known as Brother Andy. Mm. And he wore peasant's clothes and he acted and lived like a peasant. And this, you know, Luther said, that's just a new form of, of monasticism. Wearing these common clothes is just a badge of honor. It's an outward emphasis. Mm. And that was what Luther was saying, is that, you know, tearing down icons and burning crucifixes, you know, that's attacking the outward question. What about the heart? What about the fact that the heart is the greatest idol maker? That's the issue. And, and that was Luther's criticism. But on the flip side, people like Munzer and Karlstadt would say, "Well, Luther, you're just compromised. You're refusing to address the issues that we are addressing, and we're not afraid to do that." Karlstadt eventually left Wittenberg, and he was a pastor elsewhere in Germany. And he met up with Luther. There was a famous meeting. They they met up in a pub, the Black Bear Inn in Jena, in Germany, and had a, a, a huge fight and debate. And eventually Luther just threw a gold coin on the table and said, Do your best. He says, I'll pay for your next book. You know, bring your best arguments. And mm-hmm. and this is the beginning of a, a publishing war with the radicals versus the magisterial reformers. And there's many books and pamphlets printed by the radicals. They they do use the the printing press and that as best as they can. And actually many of the leaders of the radical reformation some of them are not classically tra- trained theologians but they are associated with printing presses and booksellers so they they had those backgrounds in in book selling and in printing that they used to great effect and at this time then we also see some of the radicals begin to call for political change major political change we have a guy called Hans Hergott who said that the kingdom of God must be established on earth and it will be a, it will be a rural kingdom. The city is the, is the city of man. It's corrupt. It's evil. So his ideal was to set up Christian communes where they would be self-governing, where they would be led by you know, prophetic leaders. And he said that there needs to be war. We need to call for an insurrection. And so in 1525, there was the German Peasants' Revolution, which was an armed conflict, where they attempted to overthrow the governments in Germany to establish what they regarded as the true Christendom, which would be, Christians would be free, they wouldn't have to pay taxes, they would be governed by themselves, and that they would essentially bring about the second coming of Jesus, there was a strong eschatological expectation. and peasant, rev- peasant revolts were nothing new in Germany, but now you had this added influence of Reformation doctrine, eschatology, the idea of really not just demanding relief from taxation, but abolishing the very concept. You know people say, does not the scripture says that we owe nothing to no man except love? So, why are we being forced to pay Christians this very heavy taxation what what are what are we paying universities for, so that Dr. Luther can just you know be well fed and well looked after so this was the beginning of a of a political revolution, and obviously the the peasants' war ended up costing you know hundreds of thousands of lives and there was a lot of destruction and you know, in the end, it, it didn't produce what people had hoped for. If anything, it served as a great embarrassment and discredit to some of the reformers who felt that this was exactly what they had wanted to avoid. Mm. But again, there are interesting interesting things that, you know, we would may, maybe take for granted now in Europe or North America, such as, you know, no taxation without representation. It's, it's funny that people at this time are calling yeah. for those things. Self-governing. Churches should be able to, you know, appoint and and elect pastors from within their own communities, as opposed to people from outside hierarchies imposing upon them. In fact, that was one of the main grievances of the radicals. Thomas Munzer, he said that the early church began to fall away into apostasy as soon as local congregations lost the power to appoint pastors. He said, when we have the rise of monarchical bishops who are appointing local pastors into local churches from outside. He said, that's the beginning of the end, the true church. And he says, unless that's restored, there will never be any true church because it's become an organization. It's become a a means of coercion. And so there was this idea that change had to come from below. It had to be led by people. And putting the Bible in everyone's hand was was the goal, was the idea, not just depending on theologians in, in Wittenberg or elsewhere.
1: Yeah, it seems almost like in the short term, the radical reformers were suppressed, you know, through the... Yeah. the Yeah, I guess through, you mentioned the peasant wars and these things that took place. I want to also bring up like one most extreme case of Münster in just a second, yeah. but it, I would say that almost it's like in the short term, the radical reformers lost, but in the long term, many of their ideas have triumphed over those of the magisterial reformers. So I, I want to talk yeah. about that. And I want to talk about why that is and what some of those things are. But first, mm. let's talk about kind of maybe like the worst example of mm. the radical reformers, which was what took place in the city of Munster. Could you
0: just share that? With yeah. Us? 1534 in Munster in Germany. So kind of comes off the back of an earlier prophet, a guy called Hoffman. And again, there is an element within the radicals that have these powerful prophetic figures that are sort of self-appointed spokespeople for God. They, they tend to have a great emphasis on prophetic visions and insights. They tend to have a very strong anti-clerical bias. They, they tend to have a very dim view of university theologians, they see those people as just dead, no spirit, pure, you know, useless. And also they tend to have very massive distrust of the government, that it's a source of tyranny and oppression. So Hoffman, Melchior Hoffman was one of these prophets and he came to Strasbourg. And he predicted that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1533 and that Christ was going to come to Strasbourg and set it up as a new Jerusalem. And he gathered around him, you know, very many followers and you have this charismatic leader who's causing unrest in Strasbourg. So he's arrested. You know, Jesus doesn't come in 1533. So Hoffman is executed. So many of his followers, they, they, they leave. But they're attracted to another sort of group of charismatic teachers in another city, in Munster in Germany. And then you, you have a man called John Leiden. And you also have a, a man called Jan Mattes. And again, we have this similar pattern where you, you have people coming into the city with a message of freedom, a message of sort of prophetic insight. And the city of Munster, the, you know, the the Catholic authorities are driven out and the city is eventually taken over by these group of, of radicals, self-appointed prophets, and this is a case where you said, you know, about the separation of church and state. Well, you know, many many of the early radicals, the Anabaptists in Switzerland or, or other places, they they did want to maintain a strong, you know, separation from church and state. But there were also some of the more, we could maybe say, leftist radicals who wanted to basically get rid of the state altogether and impose direct rule by the church as a sort of theocratic nation and so we see that in munster and it, it gets out of control very quickly you have you know john mattis saying that jesus christ is coming back that he's getting all these visions that people need to you know give all their money to him and that he will you know lead him into victory and it's one of these rare cases where the roman catholics and the lutherans actually join forces to attack munster and get it back so It was one of those rare things that they could both agree on was the danger of the radicals. Mattis, you know, said he had a vision that he was Joshua. He was going to go out and he was going to face the enemies of God. And so he went out with a few of his closest followers. They went out to face the army of of the emperor alone. And they said that God was going to give them the victory. But of course, they were absolutely slaughtered. And then the city you know, it was under siege, and then you have John Lydon, who said that he was basically King David, and mm-hmm. that Munster was the new Zion. and Then he instituted polygamy, mm-hmm. and it gets worse from there. But you you begin to see huge efforts of coercion to control the population. There is executions for criticizing the leadership. Every every. Every criticism that people bring, Leiden seems to get a new prophecy or a new dream that nice to give him vindication for decisions he's making. And in the end, the city is recaptured and, and uh, the leaders are put to death. And this was, you could say, a watershed moment. Many of the radicals coming out of this, you know, began to reformulate a lot of their theology. And one of the major consequences of the disaster at Münster was a strong emphasis in radical theology, you know, after the 1534 disaster that emphasized pacifism, non-resistance, but also disengagement. That communities of 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 God's people should disengage as much as possible from the world around them, not get involved in politics, do not get involved in in the in the life of the city or anything to do with commerce, but to pull back and have your own community. That would keep to yourself and, you know, live out the, the gospel in its purest form. So you do have a a sort of retreat away from society into these movements then that have a very strong emphasis on their own purity and their own pursuit of godliness.
1: Hmm. Yeah, okay. So if we can say that that was the worst example, perhaps. And it was certainly, I mean, definitely something that the magisterial reformers would have pointed to and say, said, see, this is the fruit of what these people are doing yeah. and kind of written them off then as, you know, bad bad eggs or bad seeds, if you will. But yeah. I'm wondering, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the ideas that the radical reformers put forth, some of them at least, did eventually triumph and we see their triumph, I think, in the West today. So talk about that. Like, what do you think are some of the the most positive lasting impacts of the radical reformers and what are some things that we can learn from them or glean from them today?
0: Yeah, you do begin to see the emergence of a non-conformist branch of Christianity that does not seek to receive endorsement or support from the state. And I think that is a very healthy thing It's obviously, it seems obvious to us now. I mean, but it it wasn't obvious in in Europe in the 16th century that this was a good thing. It wasn't obvious for many reasons um, and it's still not obvious, you know, in in different parts of, of the world today that that is a good thing, but it's an incredibly healthy thing that the church sees its mission, you know, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and that in fact to to seek the role of the state to enforce orthodoxy or to enforce belief and conformity is anti-gospel mm-hmm. and the the radicals they paid a very high price for that they paid with martyrdom and you know much worse they they but they stood fast to that principle and i think it is a very it's a good principle that has definitely produce fruit, that there is an idea that there really should be a freedom of conscience. And, you know, this is not to discredit the magisterial reformers, but I do think that this was a, a maybe a blind spot, even within Reformed and Lutheran theology at, at this stage. Obviously, those churches now have come to agree with the Radicals on this position. Even if you look at the Belgian Confession, which is one of the great statements of the Reformed churches, I think it's Article 39, I'm just off the top of my head. In its original form, Article 39 says that it is the duty of the state to destroy idolatry and to enforce true worship. Most Reformed churches now would have removed that article or at least toned it down. But that's exactly what the radicals were saying, mm. some of them anyway, is that that's not, that's not gospel. That's mm. the opposite. That's Old Testament law. You're, you're trying to do something that the early church never believed and that Christ never taught. But for people like Calvin or Zwingli or Luther, they would they would disagree with that and say no. The, the state must have a a role to enforce true belief and to oppose with violence unbelief. And so, it, both sides really, you could say, in this debate on in its early stages, uh, both sides had a a differing view on the role of of violence in the state. The radicals. They said, if there is tyranny, if there is oppression, that it is the duty of the Christian to resist that with violence. Now, some of the radicals said, no, that's gone too far. We should be willing to lay down our life for our beliefs, but not take up the sword. But some radicals said, no, we we must overthrow tyranny. On the other side, the magisterial reformers, they had no problem with violence as long as it was the state that was meeting it out. Mm-hmm. So both sides really were coming at this from different ends. You know, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, they would not have had issues with with the state enforcing belief. But as we see, the the dangers of that are are obvious. And I think that is actually one good lesson that we can draw from these these radicals who are seen as so dangerous. But actually, they taught us a valuable lesson that the state's role in enforcing belief should never be confused with Christianity or the gospel because that is that is not the way of, of Christ. Also, there is, I think, a healthy emphasis on the role of the local church, the role of the local congregation. This was Munster's great point is that, you know, the church, you know, it must be able to raise up from within itself its leaders. It must be accountable to itself because he was looking at the medieval European church where you have, you know, cardinals and bishops entrusted with various dioceses, and some of them have never even visited once. It's just a matter of tax collection and monetary influence. So we said, you know, that, that's the root of the problem is you have pastors, so-called, that have no connection with their local congregation whatsoever. It's just an administrative function. So we said, we need to, you know, have a, a community that brings from within itself and recognizes from within itself its leadership and his pastors and the people that the Spirit has gifted. So I think that, that I would agree with that. I think that's a positive mm-hmm. emphasis. Of course, bringing the Bible into the vernacular, having church services in the vernacular. The radicals were the first to do that, even before Luther. So the magisterials were, they eventually got there, but Karlstadt already in Wittenberg was giving the, the liturgy in, in vernacular German. And his emphasis was, you know, there's, absolutely no reason to keep the Latin because people don't understand that. Luther's counterpoint was, well, it will offend some people. And for the sake of peace, would we not rather progress slowly? Not everything has to change at once. I think there is some wisdom in that too, Mm -hmm. but I think the emphasis of Karstadt was correct. There is no point in having an aesthetically pleasing worship service in a language you can't understand. It's, Mm. it's entertainment. It's 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 not worship. I mean, for the radicals that was it was a no-brainer that we would keep these liturgical forms that were not understood by people. And that people should be engaged with the scriptures, every man. Luther obviously had a strong emphasis on scripture alone being the highest authority of the church, but in his dealings with the, the Schwarmers, the radicals, he even tells us in his his famous tract that he wrote against the Zwickau prophets, he said, you know, that he was at a meeting and this peasant came up to him and addressed him in the informal Du in German. And and Luther was like, okay. And this guy started going off about the Bible and he, Luther said he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And he said, this is exactly what Karstadt is doing. He's basically giving these people the confidence to engage in theological dispute, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about. mm mm-hmm. Maybe in that case, the guy didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But again, that emphasis by the radicals that a peasant should be able to engage with a theological professor about the faith that they share, that's not a bad thing. And that's not being disrespectful. That's actually good. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Luther felt it was, it was too fanatical and it it did kind of, for Luther, it seemed to just speak of bad manners, but for the radicals, it was imperative that the people were engaging with the things that they professed to believe. So I think that's also a valuable thing that they, they gave us.
1: Yeah, I think there are so many ways in which like somebody today listening to this, I think particularly in the United States with our history of being a nation founded by people from the radical reformation, right? Like
0: right. Uh, pilgrims. Non-conformists. Uh, yeah,
1: nonconformists. Mm-hmm that these people really set up our government and the way that our society functions. And then Mm -hmm. Europe in many ways has, I don't want to say like caught up to it because I'm not sure that we can just, you know, flat out say that it is the best way, but I would say, you know, Europe in many ways has, has changed and taken on many of these same values and and principles. I think Mm -hmm. though, I guess my point is something as an evangelical today in North America and in Europe, particularly Western Europe, I think that you can look at the Radical Reformers and see so many ways in which mm-hmm. there are similarities, at least of fundamental beliefs and principles, if not their application. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot, be, a lot to be learned from studying the Radical Reformation, but perhaps also learned from the failures and the ways that mm-hmm. it went wrong to say, mm-hmm. okay, these were some good principles. Here's how in the application of them, it went terribly wrong, like with John of Leiden and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So where would you direct listeners if they want to study more on this topic?
0: There's a great collection by Michael Baylor, the Radical Reformation. That's primary texts, but he also gives a very good introduction to the history and the context of that. That's by Cambridge University Press. These are all documents by the Radical Reformers, including some of the political manifestos that they issued, the Frankfurt articles, where there was a sort of a proto-Republican desire to change government, but also things by Manns concerning infant baptism, things by Karlstadt, whether reform should happen quickly or slowly. Some of it's quite moving, particularly when you read Baylor's introduction to each piece. A lot of these people, like they ended up suffering horrendous torture and death. Mm. For things that we would readily accept today, I'm thinking baptism. I mean, mm-hmm. like even across Protestant denominations, people are are willing to have fellowship with, you know, irrespective of these questions concerning infant baptism. But back then people they did, they, they suffered and died for for these issues. Some of the works are, I think, quite good. I enjoyed Philip Mance and his writings. There is a spirit of peace in him. He was a very irenic teacher. He didn't he didn't seek violence, he sought to be biblical, he sought to be consistent. Maybe he should have learned to be quiet, but he had a burning passion for scripture and he wouldn't be quiet and he paid ultimately, you know, with his life. There are some interesting political documents that really call for the the role of the citizen to have control over their destiny and over the state that they live in and obviously those writers paid for their, with their lives too. Some of the writings are terrible. Some of the writings are are very startling in their arrogance, in their diminishing of the Bible, which is very sad. Even by Munster, I mean, you begin to see in his writings a shift away from Scripture to diminish it altogether. As basically, if you if you keep returning to Scripture, you're nothing better than a scribe and a Pharisee. You know this real dismissive view of of the Bible, you know, and the supremacy of the personal experience the subjective spiritual encounter and so some of those writings are, are a warning to the church you know that there can be you know powerful charismatic leaders that can speak into the problems of that generation the political problems the religious problems and they offer very clear maybe simple answers mm. but there's a danger too in following these characters because they led, they led many people astray
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, in everything you're describing, I can picture in my mind right now, modern examples of that, right? Like people diminishing scripture, elevating the role of personal experience or, you Mm -hmm. know, getting into political stuff and going away from scripture, giving, you know, solutions that are pragmatic, but not Mm. necessarily biblical. And so it's a good reminder to us. I mean, this is why we study history, right? Is to, to learn these sorts of things and apply them to our present day.
0: Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. There are definitely principles that we would maybe even take for granted today that people had to, you know, lay down their life for and, and be convinced of. And it, it took amazing courage, I think, at this time to, to take a view on the Lord's Supper that, you know, that was seen as, you know, going against, you know, 1500 years of church tradition or whatever, or the question of infant baptism to to reject that. These weren't easy questions. And did these, you know, there were absolutely men and women of profound biblical conviction. And there are clear examples of where they went wrong, where they went too far. And that's, I think, why we can we can we can study both the radicals and the magisterial reformers? They they both can present us with much to learn and much to 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 ponder and to correct as well. It has to be said that the problems often the radicals are you know generally seen as the sort of the problem child of the Reformation, the ones that kind of just were immature and and crazy, you know. But like we said, you know, the Belgian Confession, you know, basically saying that the state has to you know, enforce worship through violence. I mean, the reformers ended up learning from mm-hmm. the radicals that, that, that that's, that's not gospel. That's, that's something completely alien to the message of Christ. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Shane, for this. It's been really helpful. I hope our listeners learned a lot and not just like cerebrally, but also like practically. So thank you for sharing.
0: You're welcome. Thank you, Nick.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic that you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to do that. That way, when new episodes are posted, they will be delivered right to your podcast app. We have some great episodes coming up. We have at least one more this season with Shane. We also have some upcoming episodes with Mike Neglia as well as some crossway authors on topics such as the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and so on. Hope you'll stay tuned for those and keep an eye out for them in your podcast app. If this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving a written review on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. That really helps boost the show in their algorithms, their ratings. So if you would do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless you.